The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. A reading from selected verses in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. God said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning and welcome again to you. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm one of the pastors here I just want to add my welcome to Brian's. We're really glad that you are with us this morning, especially if you're new. Special welcome to you. If you are new, uh, you're jumping in in the middle of a series that we're in. We're in the book of Deuteronomy. And specifically, we are slowing down to look at a selection of verses here in chapter 5 that deal with the Ten Commandments. And this morning, we are coming to what you might call the no-brainer of the commandments. Right? Thou shalt not murder And if you have been with us, perhaps you are even a little bit relieved this morning as we get to this one. Finally, one that I have not broken, right? I may not honor my parents perfectly or keep the Sabbath holy every week, but at least I've never killed anybody. And as you might expect, I come bearing bad news. This commandment, like all of the others, runs far deeper than it appears at first glance. You got a taste of that as we were uh, reciting the Heidelberg Catechism questions on it together. It goes much deeper uh, than simply not murdering. There is something uh, beyond that that Jesus unpacks for us. So you can see our outline there in your bulletin. We'll look this morning at the rationale behind the commandment, the meaning of the commandment, Jesus' corrective of our shallow understanding, and then finally the hope of the gospel for those who break this commandment. So let me pause and we will pray and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to bless our time together in God's Word. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We know too that your words are not empty words. They are our very life. Your word is is a lamp for our feet and a light to our path. And we desire to walk with you this morning. 
I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Um, I did hear a funny story recently about a Sunday school teacher who was discussing the Ten Commandments with her class. She had a group of younger children, five and six-year-olds, and she had just explained the commandment to honor their father and mother. And one of the kids raised his hand and said, okay, but what about our brothers and sisters? What does the Ten Commandments say about them? And another little kid piped up without missing a beat, thou shalt not murder. I thought captures it quite well. That does apply to them and everyone else as well. This commandment, like I mentioned, I think, seems like a no-brainer. I think most people, whether Christian or not, if we had to scrap the Ten Commandments and we just had to decide to rewrite them from scratch, I think many people would say, yeah, let's put don't murder in there. Let's include that one. And so as we look, first of all, at the rationale behind the commandment, you may think it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, the commandment's really short. In Hebrew, it's actually just two words. No murder. Don't do that. Uh, It seems like it would be self-explanatory. Everyone knows we ought not do this. But I wonder if we were to go out on the street and begin asking strangers why we shouldn't kill one another. I wonder what rationale people would give. We might hear something like, well, you can't have a well-ordered society if you can just run around killing each other. There's no safety or security in that. Or maybe I I don't want anyone to kill me, so therefore I I shouldn't kill them. might get some variation on this theme, a a sort of self-focused utilitarian argument. But we can understand those arguments, can't we? The Bible goes so much deeper in the rationale that it gives for this commandment. This morning we're going to spend some time in a few different texts looking at various Bible verses that comment on this theme, this idea that we are not to murder. If you have your Bibles, let me just invite you to to go ahead and pull out the one, and if you don't have it, pull out the one in the pew rack in front of you. We're going to be flipping around a little bit. Let me invite you first of all to turn to Genesis chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 5 and 6 together. In that passage, God is having a conversation with Noah after the flood, And as Noah and his family restart the human family tree, God reminds him of the value of human life. And this is what it says, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This, of course, that last little bit, the rationale that's given, is referencing back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. As God creates the world and fills it with creatures, we're told over and over again that God makes everything according to its kind. So Genesis 1.25 says, And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And so when we get to the creation of human beings in the very next verse, we might assume that it would say something like, and God made humans according to their kind. But it does not say that. 
This is what Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Every other creature is made according to their own kind. Humanity alone is made according to God's kind. After his likeness. Notice too how different the creation of human beings is to that of every other creature. Every other creature God makes by speaking. So he, les, he says, let the water swarm. And they do with fish. Let birds fly above the earth, and they do. Let the earth bring forth living creatures, and they do. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it tells us that when he formed Adam, he formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. If you go back to those early chapters, no other creature does God stoop down to form them by his own hand. And certainly no other creature has God breathed his own life into them. Humans are totally unique in this way. And that, Genesis 9 tells us, is why our lives are so valuable. Every single one of them. God has made us in his image. Every human being you look at bears the image of the Creator God. The breath that they breathe that sustains their very life is an inheritance from God Himself. It's impossible not to quote the great C.S. Lewis in his essay or speech, Weight of Glory. It's got a great, this is a long quote, but I think it is well worth it. He says, It is maybe possible to think too much of your own potential glory hereafter. But it is impossible to think too often or too deeply about that of your neighbors. The weight of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. So heavy a weight it is that only humility can carry it. He goes on, it's a serious thing to live in a society of immortals. To remember that millions of years from now, the dullest and most uninteresting person you meet may one day be an incredible creature who if you saw him now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or a horror as you only now meet in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degrees helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is therefore, in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the proper amount of awe and circumspection that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to our life as the life of a gnat 
but it is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. He says there are no ordinary people. Everyone you know, everyone you encounter, regardless of race or gender or disability or any other category, bears the image of their creator. And that is the rationale the Bible gives behind this command. They are made in the image of God. Their life is valuable for that very reason. So that gives us the rationale as to the meaning of the commandment. Just a reminder, we've said this in previous weeks, but one of the things we have to remember as we go through the Ten Commandments is that even when they are stated negatively, as this one is, do not murder, a correct interpretation means that we must consider both what sin is being forbidden and what duty is being commanded. So there's a negative aspect, things we have to avoid, but there's a positive aspect as well, something that we have to pursue, something we have to do. Let's look first at the negative aspect of this commandment. Negatively, we're not to unlawfully or immorally take human life. The translation you may be most familiar with, uh, the old King James Version, is thou shalt not kill. But the Hebrew word that's used here is not the general term for killing. There is a Hebrew word for that that just means the general taking away of life. It's the word that's often used to talk about taking an animal's life, for instance. That is actually not the word that's used here. This term used here mostly occurs in a few passages that have to do with planned or premeditated murder and then various kinds of manslaughter. If you remember from your Bible reading plan, if you've ever come across the the reality of the cities of refuge, this is the word that's often used to talk about the one who accidentally has taken someone's life and has to flee to a city of refuge before their family can seek vengeance. So it's important to note the Hebrew word here means that the sixth commandment is not forbidding all taking of life. In fact, there are scenarios in the Bible where the taking of life is permitted, even commanded. But it is important to note that in all of these scenarios, the taking of life is only permitted to either punish someone for taking another innocent life or to defend the taking of an innocent life or for some other of God's holy purposes. In other words, even when the Bible permits the taking of life, the rationale is always because human life is so valuable. Where do we see this in the scriptures? A few examples. Capital punishment. We've already read Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. It is because human life is so precious that that verse says the murderer must be punished so severely. The punishment must fit the crime. And in the ancient Near East, keep in mind... This is a novel concept. Eye for an eye was a major upgrade from the way that many cultures handled things in that day. It was not uncommon for a wealthy or powerful man, if he was killed, for his murderer to be put to death along with his entire family. 
On the other hand, if someone of a higher class killed a peasant, it was completely normal for the higher class perpetrator to simply pay a financial penalty to the family of the victim. That's how they handled life. And God says, that is not how my people will handle life. Every human life is valuable. And so the punishment of taking a human life cannot exceed the crime. A life for a life and no more. But neither shall the punishment be beneath the crime. You cannot simply pay your way out of this. Life must be paid for in its own currency. So it was the value of human life that demanded the taking of the life of the murderer in Genesis 9, verse 6. What other examples? Another one the scriptures give is in the taking of a life in certain cases of self-defense. So in Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3 say, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be a blood guilt for him. So that text imagines a scenario, right? Famous in many ADT commercials that we now know, where a thief is broken into your home in the middle of the night. And out of a desire to protect yourself or your family, you strike the thief and the thief dies. Exodus 22 says in that scenario, there's no blood guilt for you there. But did you catch the second part of that law? That little detail, if the sun has risen, there is blood guilt. The idea is that when the sun is up, if someone breaks into your home, you're more awake. There's a lot more light. So you can better ascertain your options to see if taking this person's life is really necessary to protect your own and your families. The scriptures say that human life is so precious that taking it even in self-defense is a last resort and that you ought to be as sure as you can be that it is necessary. The, the Bible's logic there is that to protect innocent life, your own or others, you must take the life of the intruder. If you have to, so be it. But the intruder's life matters too. Sinner though they are, they are also made in the image of God. So even when the Bible permits the taking of life, the rationale is always placing a high value on the image of God in that person's life. I may leave you with many questions. What, how does this apply to our current moment? How do we apply these things in our own day? And of course, we can't possibly cover every ethical scenario. But I think it's impossible to think through the implications of this commandment without thinking about suicide. Usually we think of this commandment as being an outward focused one. But I've always found it interesting that our Westminster Shorter Catechism, in response to this question, what does the sixth commandment forbid? It says first, the sixth commandment forbids the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. It is impossible to rightly value the lives of others if we do not rightly value our own. I know that this is a deeply personal issue uh, for many of us, and I don't wish to unnecessarily put my finger on that wound. 
I think it's important for us to say that we do not believe, we don't believe the scriptures teach that suicide is the unforgivable sin. There are traditions that teach that. We disagree with that. But because it is an unjust taking away of the life of an image bearer, it is a violation of this commandment. Perhaps this morning you are here wrestling with whether your life is worth living. You may think that you are worthless. May I say with the utmost respect that the Bible says differently. The God of heaven and earth has made you in his likeness. The scriptures tell us that he knit you together in your mother's womb. That you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That your life has inherent dignity and value. And so if you're here this morning and you feel that that is not true, and I know those words can just wash over you, if you feel that that is not true to the point that you have considered taking your own life, would you please consider asking for help? Your pastors here would consider it a privilege to walk alongside you and the appropriate healthcare professionals through this season. You do not have to walk in this darkness alone. I just mentioned Psalm 139, uh, a passage that, where David says that God knits us together in our mother's womb. And I think that would be another important application of this commandment. Christians have long argued that abortion is a violation of the sixth commandment. David says God knit him together in his mother's womb. Not something less than him or something that would become him. Him. And so to take that life in the womb is a violation of this commandment. Again, I know that in a room of this size, it is inevitable that abortion is a part of someone's story. And so as I said with suicide, let me say with this, this is not the unforgivable sin. It is sin. And we have a Savior in Jesus Christ whose blood covers sin for all who turn to him in repentance and faith. You may think, if that is a part of your story, that you are too far gone. The Bible says differently. Grace avails for you as well. There's so much more that could be said about this commandment and what it forbids. We mentioned that it also positively encourages us towards duties. That we are to protect and cherish all human life. What does this commandment require of us? Earlier we recited the Heidelberg Catechism. And I love the point it makes in that last question. If you've got your bulletin in front of you, just flip back to the last question there. Is it enough that we do not murder? No. This is not a bare forbidding that means, just hey, just don't kill anyone. To keep the commandment requires far more of us. We can't just avoid doing harm. We must actively seek the flourishing of human life. We are to reject all actions that lead to death. And we are to actively pursue those things which lead to life. Both for ourselves and for others. Listen to what all the Westminster Larger Catechism lists under the duties required in this commandment. Brian is right, it's long. They're a lot longer. Listen to just a few of these. 
It requires the just defense of lives against violence, patiently bearing the hand of God with quietness of mind and cheerfulness of spirit. It requires the sober use of food, drink, medicine, sleep, labor, and recreations. It asks us to consider, do we eat and drink in a way that leads to life? It goes on, charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, and kindness. Peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior. Are our comments online leading to life? It goes on, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled. Patient bearing and forgiving of injuries and returning good for evil. Comforting and supporting the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent. Anyone else getting a little concerned about their batting average on this one? I am. Now you may be sitting there thinking, where are they getting all of that? Two words, thou shalt not murder, no murder. And they are getting that from Jesus. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, teaches us that murder flows from murderous hearts. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What is Jesus' point? His point is, murder flows from murderous hearts. Murder might be the fruit, but anger and bitterness and indifference are the seeds. Jesus takes the commandment deeper and he shows us that every time we flood with anger at someone who cuts us off in traffic, every time we nurse a grudge and refuse to reconcile with a friend, every time we angrily call a friend or a loved one a name, that we have broken this commandment because the seed of murder has been planted in our hearts. Which makes all of us murderers. It's what 1 John 3.15 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Well, what hope do we have then if we cannot even keep this one? What hope do we have? And the next verse in 1 John 3 tells us, By this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is the hope of the gospel for those who break this commandment, meaning all of us. Our only hope is in Jesus. The one who gave himself over to a sham of a trial, who was convicted for crimes he did not commit, and was murdered that murderers like us might go free to go back to a point we made earlier life has been paid for in its own currency 
A life was given for a life. The punishment fit the crime. The wrath of God for sin was poured out, and Jesus drank that cup to the dregs. And the amazing part is that the book of Hebrews tells us why Jesus did that. It was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured all of that. Tim Keller pointed this out in a sermon years ago, and I've never gotten over it. Think about that verse. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? What did he not have before he went to the cross? He didn't have you. He didn't have me. That was why he went to redeem us. We were the joy that was set before him. And he endured it, despising the shame. Jesus was murdered so that murderers like us can go free. Friends, let us marvel at the life of Jesus given freely for us. And let us go out from this place seeking, honoring life. Seeking its flourishing. Avoiding this culture of death that we live in. Seeking to bring about its end in every way that we can. Because we have one who died that we might go free. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. That Jesus has set us free. We pray now. Lord, for those of us who have violated this commandment in thought and word and indeed even this past week, Lord, and perhaps some of us in deeper ways than we even know, would you forgive us? We plead the blood of your son and we thank you that he has died, that we might go free. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.